Youth World. Do you remember that? When you were a youth, it was a whole world unto yourself. <laughs> We've been um, looking at Moses as a mentor for ourselves uh, over these last few months, and um, a mentor in how to have an authentic relationship with the living God. Uh, Moses was really a significant uh, person, and I think probably without us realizing it, Moses himself has influenced our culture, <clears throat> you know, through the Ten Commandments and so forth in a lot of ways that uh, we don't often think about. But um, we saw that uh, as a mentor, Moses was somebody that God spoke to and then spoke through. Um, God spoke to Moses and through Moses to other people. And uh, one of the things that uh, God gave through Moses was the Ten Commandments. And so we saw uh, the last couple of weeks that, you know, the first four commandments really are an expansion on uh, what Jesus said is the number one thing that we should be doing with our lives, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you were to ask how are we supposed to do that, you could look at the first four commandments and say, this is what's important to God, and this is what it means to love him. And then we saw the second, uh, well, the, the last six of the Ten Commandments have to do with loving our neighbors as ourselves, right? Jesus said the second commandment is just like it, like the first, love uh, your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, how do you do that? If you were to study the last six of the Ten Commandments, uh, they address this particular issue. And so we're back in Exodus where uh, the people were at Mount Sinai, and you might remember that, you know, right before the Ten Commandments were given, uh, God told Moses to talk to the people, and uh, all the people agreed that they would do whatever God asked. Um, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, um, God is speaking to Moses to tell the people what to, uh, to tell Moses what to say to the people. Uh, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. God's like, I'm going to love you. And, and by the way, uh, the things that are said here are very similar to the things that God says to the church in the New Testament. You know, you will be a kingdom of priests. You'll be my treasured possession. And, and through you, I intend to speak to all the nations in the world. And, and that's what God says. You're going to be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God is saying, you know, to Moses, I want you to go talk to the people like this. And so Moses calls all the people together and he says those words. And verse 8 says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Of course, they don't do it. But at the beginning, before they even heard what God had to say in terms of the Ten Commandments, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses goes back and reports these words to God and so forth. So then, chapter 19, Mount Sinai, we have the Ten Commandments. God speaks the Ten Commandments to the people. Right? Moses up on the mountain, people are down below. And, uh, and then we read this in, in chapter 20, after the Ten Commandments are given by God. When all the people, verse 18, saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. You speak to us, Moses. We're happy to listen to you. 
But don't let God, it's too awesome to have God speak to us. And I think, you know, uh, it's very similar to today. Uh, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, I'm happy to listen to my favorite, you know, TV evangelist or my favorite whatever. And, uh, but God, for God to speak to me directly and to have a personal relationship with God like Moses had where God speaks to him and through him. A lot of people are like, you know, you, you speak to us and we'll listen to you or we'll read a book or we'll do this. But to have God by his spirit actually speak to us through his word one to one, that can be a frightening thing. And so that's kind of the uh, setup uh, that, that's here. And Moses is up on the mountain. So Moses goes back up on the mountain after uh, all of this. And um, God is giving him what we call case by case, case law. You know, um, he's, he's talking about how the Ten Commandments apply in specific cases. So if you read through chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, you, you get all of that. And then uh, in addition to that, God is giving Moses instructions about how to build the tabernacle. So it's taken a while for Moses to get all this. He's writing it down, right? He wrote the first five books of the Bible and so forth. And um, so what's going on among the people while Moses is up on the mountain listening to God? And you're probably familiar with uh, this part of the scriptures, uh, but... The people are getting restless. Moses has been gone for 40 days, okay, like six weeks. He's been gone for about 40 days. He's getting all this. God is speaking to him and so on. And what are the people doing at the bottom of the mountain? Uh, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said to him, up, make us small g gods. Make us a new God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then they had a big feast and worshipped the calf and so on. Now, I say to myself, why would the people do that? Why would the people do that? I try to put myself in the crowd of people. Put yourself amongst that crowd. Okay, number one, you've been a slave all your life. You've never been free. You've been a slave. Somebody has dictated your life to you. Somebody has provided for you. Somebody's told you what to do and what not to do and so on. And now all of a sudden you're free. Okay? That can be uncomfortable. Not quite knowing what to do. Maybe making me feel a little insecure. You know? Who's, where's the food going to come? Then I think, but these people, I mean, they saw the power of God in the miracles that God did to make them free. Right? They saw these ten... Uh, signs that God gave and, and caused the Egyptians to tell them, please, go, leave, you know. Uh, if I'm in one of the people in that crowd, I'm realizing, you know what, I walked across the bed of the Red Sea myself when the waters were pushed up on the side. I had that experience. And they're only out of Egypt like three months. So it's only like three months ago, you know. And uh, I'm saying to myself, you know what, uh, I've eaten that manna that came down out of heaven. And you know what? I drank some of that water that came out of that rock out here in the middle of the desert. 
And I'm thinking, wow, God is pretty awesome, you know. And um, uh, not only that, but, you know, I saw the pillar of fire at night, and I saw the cloud leading us by day. And I can't wait more than six weeks for Moses to come back because God's dealing with Moses. When it was, I was part of the crowd that said, you know, don't let God speak to us directly. Moses, you go get it from God. You give it to us. We'll listen to you. But we're scared that God will kill us if he keeps talking the way he's been talking with the Ten Commandments. We can't, we can't survive. And so, you know, I kind of asked myself, well, what's going on with these people? And I'm, I'm thinking, um, there's no leader. There's no Moses and so the people are restless. Maybe they're starting to feel insecure. Maybe they're starting to feel uh, vulnerable. Maybe they're uneasy. They're afraid. They're scared. I'm feeling kind of inadequate. What do you do when you feel inadequate? What do you do when, when, when you, know, you feel insecure? When maybe you lose your job? What do you do when maybe you lose your marriage? What do you do when you feel insecure? Uh, what do you do when, um, you know, you lose your health? And all of a sudden the doctor comes and tells you, you know, you're, you're in trouble and so on. Well, what do we do when that happens? You know, wherever there's life, there's change. And wherever there's change, there's loss. And wherever there's loss, there's pain. And so these people are doing life with God, but... There's change. They're out in the desert after being their whole life in Egypt and so forth. And um, there's loss. All of a sudden, we've lost Moses. We don't know what happened to him. And so there's the pain of maybe insecurity, uh, the pain of feeling inadequate and so forth. And so when, when life does that to you, what do you do? I think we only have two choices. Uh, number one, we either grow our faith in God at those junctures in life, and we, we, we have to stretch our faith to go beyond where it's at, right? We have to go deeper than, than where we're at. We're, we grow our faith, which means stretching our faith further than we've ever done before. We have to trust him at a, a new level. Uh, faith really is about moving beyond our hurt feelings and our anger and, and so forth to be able to trust God even more. And, and that kind of faith doesn't come easy. It's hard. Okay, um, And I think when we do increase our faith in God like that, we learn a couple of things. And one of the things I think we learn in that uh, process is that uh, God in and of himself is an end, not a means. A lot of people think of God as a means to an end. Right? Like if I please God and I live by the Ten Commandments, God will give me a comfortable life. He's my means to the end that I want, that I desire. But God sometimes, you know, knocks the slats out from under us because God wants us to understand, no, I'm an end in myself. I'm not the means. I'm so glad for what uh, Janice said this morning that, you know, when we pray, the idea of adoration, of just adoring God for who he is without thinking about, you know, what I need him to do for me. Like, I think God is saying, you know, I am what you want. I am the source of your satisfaction. That's who I am. And you, what you really want is me. You just don't know it. And you, you keep having these other desires, and you think of me as a means to that end. And I think when God doesn't, I, I think there's some prayers that I've had in those times where I'm hurting or insecure or whatever that God does not answer. 
Because he wants me to understand that he is an end, not a means to some other end that I maybe desire more than him. And so we learn that, I think, as our faith gets deeper, we learn that, you know, he really is all that we really have. And, uh, and that's a great lesson to learn. Uh, God is like, no, I'm, I'm an end in myself. I'm not a means to some other end. I am what you desire. And uh, I think God wants to be what we want. He wants to be what we want. He wants us to want him. And so <clears throat> if we increase our faith, I think we discover that about him. And he is uh, able to uh, satisfy everything in life. And he's the only one who's able to do that. But if we don't deepen our faith, if we decide, you know, uh, that, that, we're not, that we can't stretch our faith and we can't trust him more because we're so hurt or insecure and so forth, well, then I think we do what the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. We go for a lesser God, a small g God. Now, you remember the very first thing God said when he gave the Ten Commandments is don't have any other small g gods before me. Don't ever turn away to some small g God in my place. And the very first thing the Israelites do when they start to feel a little insecure because Moses is up on the mountain is they create a small g God. I look for someone or something that's a little bit less than the big g God whom we've come here to worship this morning because I think that I can manage a golden calf. I think that I can create a golden calf. I think that I can take my own destiny into my own hands and it gets comfortable to be able to try to address the hurt and the pain in my life by creating a small G God. Um, and so scripture says that when that happens, when we refuse to trust God more and grow our faith and mature in our faith, uh, that, that's exactly what we will do. We will take something from the creation when we don't any longer worship the creator. In Romans chapter 1, right, the Apostle Paul uh, talked about it like this, starting in verse 20, he says, you know, um, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So people are without excuse, for although they know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, uh, but they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore, God gives them over to the lust of their heart, to impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Small g gods are made out of something from the creation. And whenever we uh, refuse to grow our faith and we turn to these small g gods to do for us what only God can do, um, the Bible calls these small g gods idols. The Bible has a lot to say about idols. And, um, you know, we think of an idol as somebody who, you know, carved a totem pole or something and is bowing down to it or kissing it or whatever. But you can make a small g God out of anything in the creation. And uh, I, I hope to share with you a couple of uh, kind of contemporary small g gods that it seems to me uh, many people turn to. And so these people out in the desert with Moses feel insecure, feel inadequate. 
uh, without Moses, and um, their fear increases rather than their faith. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, you have a choice that you have to make. Am I going to allow fear to kind of get more of a grip on my life, or am I going to look to this God uh, who's brought me this far and who's done great things in my past, uh, as he did in the past of the people of Israel, and am I going to trust him more, um, or am I going to look to something less uh, than God and fashion for myself some small g God? Um, Whenever we... uh, convey godlike status to something in the creation, we create one of these idols or one of these pseudo-gods or one of these small g gods. Whenever we turn to something other than God to do for us what only God can do, it becomes an idol. And idolatry is the opposite. It's the exact opposite of a meaningful belief in the reality of God. Uh, G.K. Chesterton um, who's a contemporary uh, biblical author and commentator, said when we, when we cease to worship God, um, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. When we cease to worship God, we don't stop worshiping, we just find something else, and we begin to worship it. And I think you'll see in our culture there are many things like that that uh, people turn to. Um, And why is that? Well, I think it's because, as Scripture says, God has put eternity in our hearts. God has put transcendence in our hearts. Most people understand and know and acknowledge that there's more to life than just the material side of our lives. Because God has put eternity in our hearts or transcendence into our hearts. And so uh, we know that when we turn to these things, they'll never really take God's place. Um, So God actually, you know, mocks idols and Uh, The 115th Psalm is kind of a a great psalm. Uh, Verse 2, God asks some questions. He says, you know, why should the nations say, where is their God? Why should the nations ask where our God is? Our God's in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Our God is the sovereign God. He's the creator of the universe, and he does whatever he pleases. Then he goes on. Uh, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk. They don't make a sound in their throat. But here's the verse. Those who make them become like them. At first, we think we're making these small g gods, but eventually these small g gods make us. And uh, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So do all who trust in these small g gods. Uh, Isaiah chapter 44, another place where God, I think, sort of mocks uh, the whole business of idolatry or small g gods. And by the way, I, I think that, you know, the first commandment is first for a reason. Don't put any other small g gods before me because once you do that, all the other commandments begin to fall like dominoes. Because if we're not going to listen to God, we're not going to trust him when he allows certain tests to come into our life, um, well, then all the other things just kind of go away because he can't be trusted. So Isaiah chapter 44, thus says the Lord, verse 6, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God, period. You know the bumper sticker coexist? Don't buy it. Besides me, God says, there simply is no God. Um, Verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. 
Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses, is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Who does that? Why would you turn to something that can't help you and in the process turn away from God? One more. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, God has this against his people. He says, my people have committed two great sins against me. God is really frustrated because, number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. They've turned away from me, the source of life, the fountain of living water. That's the first thing. And then second, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've made small g gods. They've turned away from me and tried to find what they can only get from me in other places. Um, And so, you know, what happens is that these small g gods, they promise ultimate fulfillment, but they always shatter and they don't deliver. And in fact, they leave us more broken uh, than we were before. So you ask yourself, well, how do these small g gods come to exist and how do they get into our lives? And I would say to you that, you know what, we all end up being hurt by the world in which we live. I was watching the news this week and um, watching the faces of the people in Indonesia. You know, we have a missionary in Indonesia, uh, Dave and Carol Krampka. And, uh, you know, the tsunami that came in and just wiped out everything. And you look at the faces of the people like they were numb. They were in shock. They were just, you know, the world we live in has the power to hurt us. Right, And so we all experience hurt from the world we live in or the people that we live with or the circumstances that we encounter and our, our dreams get shattered and our fears rise. And we either turn to God right, or we look to something in the creation to help us with our hurts. And I think here's a, a couple of obvious, you know, some people become addicts. We have an epidemic in our country, you know, to address the opioid thing. Um, Some people just become addicts um, and become addicted to drugs or alcohol or sex or education or career or work or money or whatever. I'll tell you what, behind every addict, you always find hurt. If you can get an addict to be honest with you as to what's going on and get back far enough, you'll always find behind addiction, there's always hurt. Somewhere along the line, people were looking for something and got the opposite. And um, so it becomes a small g-god. I look for that to do for me what only God can really do for me. Uh, Some people just drop out of society to deal with the hurt in their life. They just don't have anything to do with anybody anymore. We call it a form of narcissism, right? It's just like I isolate. I'm just not going to get involved. I know that God says love your neighbor, but you know what? I tried that. It doesn't work. I'm out. I'm done. I'm just not going to do it. I can't look to God to have more faith and deeper faith and to serve him and to become a servant leader like God calls us to be, like Jesus. So I just isolate. I just kind of drop out. I just stop being the person that God uh, created me to be. Uh, another way that we do this, I think, is you know we turn to material possessions. Some people uh, just give themselves to the material side of life, and everything's about you know uh, the material side of life, and we ignore, again, this kind of faith that God invites us into 
uh, that would be all-consuming. So small g gods, you know, they're like an anesthetic. They sort of uh, maybe relieve pain for a little while, but they always wear off. They can never really deliver over the long haul. And so we need more. And then before you know it, these small g gods are owning us instead of us creating them. And that's why God says, listen, whatever you do, right, don't put any small g gods before me. They'll ruin your life. They'll take your life away. I am the source of living water. Don't try to hew out some cistern that can't hold water. These Israelites, you know, they wanted something tangible to connect them to the intangible God. So let's take all our gold and let's make an idol. And let's say that's the God who brought us up out of Egypt and and so on. Um, Somebody has said, um, whatever we don't work out with God, we end up acting out in our lives. Whatever we don't work out with God, we come up against some hurt, we come up against some issue, some circumstance, some you know, life-changing event in our lives. And if we don't work it out with God and we turn to one of these lesser gods, uh, we will end up, you know, um, we'll end up working it out in our own lives. We'll act it out in our own lives. Um, hurt is hard to deal with. Um, if you think of your uh, heart as like a sponge and you nurture the hurt, you know, and you begin to fill your sponge or fill your heart with the hurts that you take hits from and so forth along the way, pretty soon there's no room left to absorb the love that God has for us. And uh, usually hurt people don't love people, right? Uh, hurt people hurt people. And so uh, when our hearts get full and there's no room for love, our, our heart, like a sponge, just can't absorb anything more. And uh, if we don't work it out with God, uh, we just become incapable of living the life that God called us out of the world to be. You'll be my special possession, God says. I have great plans for you, uh, plans for uh, your whole life, you know, to uh, be a witness to the nations around you and so on. So here's uh, some of these small g gods. What, you know, they're not uh, kind of like what we think about when we think about idols, But what are some of these small g gods that uh, tempt us away from growing our faith in God? I think an obvious one, first of all, is narcissism. Uh, You know, when we seek to live a me-first life instead of a God-first life, it's called narcissism. And everything in life is calculated around me uh, versus becoming a servant leader like God calls us to be, to be like Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, done this, but um, I think this small g god of narcissism is fostered by uh, the marketing industry in our culture. Um, I don't know if you've ever taken advertisements and just analyzed them and see how many advertisements are actually appealing to our ego, right? It's all about us. Uh, Remember, we defined ego as that part of us that wants to edge God out and take God's place in our life. Until we get converted and we become Christians and we become so impressed with God as an end in himself that our ego now gets converted into, you know, exalting God only. We want God to be recognized for who he is. We have this conversion experience at the core of our being when God's spirit gets inside of us and all of a sudden we recognize, you know, who God really is. And now we want him to be exalted, not us. But narcissism starts with... With us, And I think it's nurtured by the whole advertising industry, and it's kind of subtle. We don't even recognize it. I think it's also fed by a large number of self-focused um, 
philosophies of psychology uh, about uh, ourselves and, and how you know, to deal with life and our issues. Uh, so much of psychology is kind of self-focused, contemporary psychology. I'm, I'm so thankful, you know, we have a tr- uh, our, our church has this ministry called Renew and uh, counseling services, counseling associates. And um, I, I know you know that uh, Dr. Dwayne Kellogg, who used to be our director there, uh, retired and moved to Maine. And uh, the new uh, guy who's come in, his name is uh, Jeff uh, White, and uh, excellent, uh, really well-prepared and so forth, and uh, has a lot of experience. So, but I'm just happy that there's a voice in the midst of the whole counseling thing that says, no, God is for us. And if we factor God into our lives, all of a sudden, there's a whole different way of dealing with our issues than just being so self-focused and looking for the answer within ourselves, that God is for us and not against us. And, um, and, and we can realize that. And it's a, it's a significant ministry that helps people. You know, it, it seems to me that narcissism is all about, you know, achieving the perfect self-image um, versus a servant leader, right? There's a world of difference between a narcissistic person who's trying to, you know, just be the right person, have the right weight and the right job and the right car and live in the right house and have the right friends and blah, 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 you know, and on and on, versus a servant leader. A narcissistic person is always asking what you can do for me. A servant leader is always asking, what can I do for you? Get the difference? The motto of a narcissistic person is, here's what you could do for me. The motto of a servant leader is, what can I do for you? When you came to church this morning, did you come here saying, you know, God, what can I do for you at church today? Who can I serve? Who could I encourage? Who could I come alongside of? Who could I talk to? And who do I know that's struggling and, you know, put a word in or have a prayer with? Or, you know, or do we come here saying, gee, I hope I get something today. What's in it for me? You know, kind of thing. There's a world of difference between a narcissistic, a small g, God of narcissism and um, God calling us to be servant leaders. Um, narcissism, I think, causes us uh, to meet our own needs at the expense of others rather than to meet others' needs at the expense of ourselves, like Jesus did, like Jesus taught us to do, because he did. We're going to be around the communion table in a few minutes. And here's Jesus who comes and loves us at his own expense. Servant leadership. And that's what God calls us to be. And so um, St. Augustine, 400 A.D., said uh, in a prayer, he said to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. God made us for himself, and our hearts will be restless until we truly find our rest in him. Um, One other passage of scripture associated with this whole narcissistic thing is... uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible warns us that when we get closer and closer to the end times, here's what things will be like. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, understand this, that in the last days there will come uh, times of difficulty for people will be lovers of themselves. People will be narcissistic. People will be lovers of themselves. You know, the more insecure we feel in our culture, when we feel like, you know, uh, the institutions that used to support us that we're unsure about, we don't know where it's going, the monetary system, the economic system, the trade agreements, the, everything's kind of up for grabs. The more insecure we feel, the more we think, well, all I got is me. And so I got to take care of me. And we kind of withdraw. 
You know, and, and so Paul says to Timothy, understand this. This is going to happen. People will be lovers of themselves. And then look what happens. All these other small g gods fall out from that. Once you become that, look at this. People will be lovers of themselves, um, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people as these. What a list. And you could probably think of some contemporary issues where you say, my goodness, it's happening, right? Okay, here's another one of these small g gods. Uh, narcissism is one. I think um, another small g god, an idol in our culture is, we already mentioned, materialism. Uh, we try to replace or reduce the invisible god with something visible. Um, isn't that what the people did? They tried to replace the invisible god with a golden calf made out of gold. They took the most precious stuff they had was most valuable and tried to fashion it uh, into a god, something from the material universe to take the place of God. It's the opposite of faith. You know, faith in Hebrews 11, chapter 1, um, the Bible describes that faith is the substance, right, of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Not seen. I think of the prosperity gospel that says, look, the way that you can tell whether God really loves you is if you can see his blessings in your life. Right? That's the prosperity gospel. And so if you do this, God will do that and so forth, and people buy into that. Uh, it's the opposite of what faith is. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith develops when God says maybe no to our other desires to help us understand that he's an end in himself and not a means to some other end. And that's what the people missed out on in the desert there at Mount Sinai. Uh, materialism, it seems to me, is the opposite of faith. Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter f uh, 4 talks about this, the 18th verse. We look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God says, I've, you know, you live in a material universe and all of that, given all that for you to enjoy, have at it, but you are much more than that. Don't make a small g God out of that to replace me, your father in heaven. Um, success and social standing and economic power and so forth, when they become ultimate concerns, they become gods. Uh, any concern, you know, that becomes ultimate uh, puts demands on us. Think about anything that you are going to give yourself to, and everything puts demands upon us, um, unconditional demands, that if we don't follow, it won't work. And so materialism often leaves us, I think, frustrated and burned out, and uh, we get to a, you know, the top of the ladder or whatever, find out it's up against the wrong wall, and all that kind of stuff, when we try to reduce reality to that which can be seen and touched and felt. In uh, Luke chapter 12, you might remember Jesus um, said this, he said, you know, take care, we talked about this verse, uh, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in his possessions. There's more to life than our stuff, and we're going to leave all the stuff behind anyway. And so keep perspective and don't allow it to become a small 
God. Um, uh, we, I think the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a message about what happens when materialism becomes a small g God and we try to make a life out of our material world. The whole book of Ecclesiastes says it's like chasing after wind. You will not find the life that you're looking for there. Um, and another one, another cousin, I think, of materialism is what we might call rationalism or the scientific approach. Um, if you think about science, you realize that uh, science pursues truth, right? Aren't you thankful for science? Look at how much we've learned and, and how, how many advances. I think of uh, science and technology and, and how technology is just like taken over. If you think about uh, technology and science, like in, um, in the health field, in medicine, Think of the advances that have happened in medicine because of science and, and because of technology. Uh, but when technology or science becomes an end in itself or becomes a small g god, um, if you think about medicine, in spite of the huge advances, uh, science itself, when it becomes a god, can't answer the godlike questions. If you think of just science in terms of med the medical field, it leads us to questions like, now that we've discovered these things, who should be born? And science can't answer that question. Who should we let die? And who should we keep alive? Hey, should an embryo be cloned? Science can't answer those kinds of questions, you see. And when science becomes our small g God, it will shatter and it will leave us with an inability uh, to really live and address the issues that come into our lives. Uh, another God is control or power. Um, you know, people at Mount Sinai felt insecure and inadequate and in need of some kind of power in their situation. And uh, this quest for power leads people to, you know, kind of subdue other people, uh, the opposite of what God calls us to do, a kind of, you know, whatever it takes mentality starts to rise. And I think we see this played out in the political arena, especially this past week on a lot of fronts. Um, Jesus asked the question in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 25, what does it profit a guy if he were to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his life? If you lose your life to gain the whole material world or to gain power, uh, what good is it? And um, I think Jesus addressed the whole issue of materialism and you remember when uh, he was tempted by the devil and he's out in the desert and Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days and Satan comes to him and says, why don't you turn those rocks into bread so that you can eat? And you remember what Jesus said? He said, man does not live by materialism alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we're hurting and when we're up against those life situations, it's an invitation to develop a faith that's deeper than it has been before. And to find God to be more than we thought he was. And uh, I believe that's why God even allows those things. Another uh, one of these small g gods, if I can just uh, give you a couple more, is uh, the whole God of fitting in or conformity. You know, when everything in life is all about living up to other people's expectations. When everything in life is just, I just want to fit in. I don't want to... Stick out. I don't want to be an individual. I want to be one of the crowd and so on. The whole God of conformity or fitting in. Um, you know, 
I think of Aaron, right? All the people come to Aaron and they're like, make us a God. And Aaron's like, okay. I'm like, Aaron, what are you doing? Why would you just go along with the crowd? You're Moses' brother. Why wouldn't you stand up and say, we're not going to make a small G. God, my goodness, that's the first thing God said not to do. Why would we want to do that? Now, I don't know. There's another place where Aaron tries to usurp his brother's leadership, and he wants to be that guy and, and so forth. And maybe he saw this as an opportunity, like, wow, if I go along with the crowd, kind of like the political arena in which we live. Like, what can I say that the people want to hear so that I can get elected? I don't know. But when we have this as a small G God of just trying to fit in and just trying to conform to everybody around us, I think what we uh, lose or what we deny, we, we, we lose any sense of creativity and we forget about the fact that God has invested in every one of us uniqueness. There's billions of people on the planet. No two are the same. When the Bible says we're made in the image of God, and I think each one of us has a little piece of that image, and you say to yourself, God is so multifaceted that each one of us is a unique part of that image. Why would we give that up? Why would we say, I don't want to, I just want to fit in. I just want to, you know, maybe it's a fear of criticism or a fear of failure or rejection, whatever it might be. But God has invested uniqueness in us. He's infused us with his spirit. He's given us a, a unique mix of gifts and abilities and personality and experiences And when we refuse to embrace our God-given identity, it seems to me we choose the end of conformity, small g God, living to please others instead of God. And our identity comes from outside of our, not totem poles, spirit of God taking up residence within us. Small g gods, not, not totem poles carved out of wood, but, you know, contemporary, where do we turn when we hurt rather than developing a deeper faith in our God? One last one. Um, I think there's a very popular small G God that we could just call feeling good. Feeling good. I live to feel good, right? Um, I don't know if you remember, um, there was a song years ago, you know, hooked on a feeling. Hooked on a feeling. And uh, the whole business of life is just to feel good. As, uh, uh, you know, so I just do whatever it takes to feel good. And um, I was watching the news the other day again, and... Um, Do you realize over 250 people have died taking selfies? You know, people like climb up on top of a bridge to get a fancy selfie or climb up on top of the World Trade Center or whatever and take a selfie and so forth, fall off, fall into the river. Lots of people have drowned doing, you know, hanging off a cliff to take a selfie, to have that one moment to get on the Internet and have that one kind of moment of fame or whatever. Over 250 people. Just got to do something that makes me feel good. And all of a sudden I feel important or special because I get this many hits on the web or whatever and so on. And so you might ask yourself, you know, um, how much, how often do we turn to the small G God of feeling good, hooked on a feeling? And uh, I'll just give myself to whatever makes me feel good rather than to develop this faith in God that satisfies, you know. Uh, Some people want a religion that makes them feel good all the time. Some people sacrifice Christianity in order that they might have a religion that's a feel-good religion, right? I just have to feel good all the time or it doesn't work for me. But, you know, Christianity often takes us to the place where it took Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus finally had to say, Father, not my will, 
but yours be done. And that sometimes involves a cross. Pick up your cross and follow me. And that's not a happy place. It's not a, it's not a happy feeling, right? When God calls upon us as servant leaders to do that which is difficult and to take a step into, you know, like Jesus did when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, you know what, not, not my will. My will would be to feel good, you know, but it's not about my will, it's about your will because you're God and I'm not. And so, um, uh, again, uh, let me just uh, read one more passage of scripture in Exodus chapter 32 because if you ask yourself, how did God feel about what the people did? Now remember, God had just got them out of Egypt. He had fed them. He had given them water. He said, you know, every time they crab and complain, they didn't like the manna. He sends them quail. I mean, you know, so Moses is up on the mountain and God is talking to Moses and um, here's what God says to Moses in verse 7 of Exodus 32. The Lord said to Moses, go down the mountain for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now all of a sudden they're Moses' people, God says. Right? That's like when your kids act up and your wife says, your kids, right? That's what God's saying. But listen to this, verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've turned aside quickly. It's only been three months. They've turned aside so quickly. They've they've forgotten. And uh, they have made for themselves a golden calf, and they've worshipped it, and they've sacrificed to it, and they've said, these are your gods. This is God talking. These these are going to be your gods, small g gods. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they're a stiff-necked, stubborn group of people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God's saying to Moses, I'm done. I've had it. These people don't give a rip about me. I'm going to get rid of them. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And we'll make a whole new group of people. And you have to come back next week to see what happens. But, you know, when we exercise faith in the real God, I believe that God calls us to be servant leaders like Moses. And we have to keep increasing our faith and trusting God at a deeper level than we ever have before in order that we might become those servant leaders just like Jesus. And so in a minute, we're just going to go over to that table and we're going to remember, how did these people forget what happened just three months ago? That they would turn to a small G God. And one of the beauties of coming around the Lord's table together is that we get to remember what God did for us. And in Romans, the Apostle Paul asks the question, if God would give up his only begotten son, then do you think he would hold back anything? That's not good for us. And when we have that perspective, but we forget. We forget that God already gave up that which was most precious to him. And when we forget, we become susceptible to those small g gods. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the Bible. And you know, you tell us in your word that what happened to the people of Israel happened for our benefit, that we could learn from them, that we could look back and we could... Uh, see what happened to them and see how they treated you and see about the relationship between you and them and how it played out and, and that we could learn from it and do better. 
And not only that, but you've now put your spirit within us so that we're, we're not by ourselves to make these decisions, but you're right inside of us, Father, helping us uh, to make the right calls. And so I pray that you would help us to identify those small G gods that we tend to turn to instead of developing a deeper faith in you and a deeper walk with you. Help us to identify those uh, contemporary small G gods. And Father, give us the power to root them out of our lives and to make you, Father, the only source of the living water that we live. And we thank you, Father, for that possibility because of what you've done for us in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. You know, it's always our privilege to invite to the Lord's table